Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on October 23, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. In this episode, we'll talk human evolution with renowned anthropologist and Neanderthal expert Chris Stringer, and with Scientific American editor Kate Wong, co-author of the new book Lucy's Legacy, The Quest for Human Origins. First up, Chris Stringer. He's a fellow of the Royal Society and holds the title of Research Leader in Human Origins at the Natural History Museum in London. His most recent book is Homo Britannicus, The Incredible Story of Human Life in Britain, and that's the first subject of our conversation. Obviously, there was an old view that, that when people got into Britain half a million years ago, they were always here, right through to the present. And we now know that's completely wrong, that actually what happened about every 100,000 years when there was the peak of an ice age, Britain got cleaned out of people entirely, and it had to be recolonized all over again. And remarkably, 125,000 years ago, when Britain we seem, seems to have been an island, perhaps for, strongly for the first time, nobody got back. So you had a warm period with hippos and elephants and tons of stuff for people to eat, and no one was there. The Neanderthals didn't have boats, and they couldn't get across the English Channel. So you actually had, for 100,000 years, Britain had no people on it, even when the climate would have allowed it. Eventually, the Neanderthals made it back when sea level fell again. So you've got these little episodes of human appearance, and then people just disappear. People are only in Britain maybe for 20% of the time in the last 700,000 years, which is... Incredible, you know, from the old idea of continuity of occupation. And by people, you're including all homo species. Yeah, yeah. So we think now, um, obviously, there's this species identified from southern Europe, uh, homo antecessor, pioneer man, that the Spanish have identified at Atapuerca. And probably that could have been the first species into Britain, moving up from southern Europe in, in warm stages. Then we think we have homo heidelbergensis, such, such as at Boxgrove, um, then later on the Neanderthals, so from about 400,000 onwards, whenever people are in Britain for 300,000 years, it's, the, it's Neanderthals, evolving Neanderthals. And the Neanderthals are in Britain until about 35,000 years ago, and then at 30,000 years ago we pick up modern people. There's a burial, a ceremonial burial, at Paviland of a Cro-Magnon, and it was in fact probably the first one ever found. It was dug up in about 1822, and of course they had no concept then of what it was. It was thought to be perhaps a, a prostitute servicing the Roman army because this individual had red ochre powder on them and ivory jewellery. So they thought it was a woman. And in fact, it was a man. So it was nicknamed. It was called the Red Lady of Pavilion. In fact, we know it's a man. So we've learned quite a lot since 1822. Um, and that's a burial that's 30,000 years old. Then those modern people were in Britain. Even they couldn't survive the peak of the last ice age. So about 20,000 years ago, the last ice age reaches its peak. Even those people, the moderns, can't survive. And Britain has to be recolonized all over again after the peak of the last ice age. So it's an amazing story. You, you mentioned evolving Neanderthals. So what you're implying there is the Neanderthals of 300,000 years ago were different from the Neanderthals that were the last ones to be there 35,000 years ago. Yes, certainly. We can, we can track the evolution of the Neanderthals. And obviously people use the, the term differently. So different people use different ways of defining what is a Neanderthal. For me, the Neanderthal lineage, we can see its beginnings at Swanscombe in Kent at 400,000 years and at Atapuerca where there's this, the pit of bones is full of the remains of fossils that are transitional between Homo heidelbergensis and Neanderthals. They show a mixture of features of those two species. So I think the Neanderthals are beginning, certainly by about 400,000 years ago. Then they gradually evolve 
to to the final Neanderthals, the ones we know best from from Europe in the last ice age. And so brain size increases. They develop more specialised body shape. Uh, the technology, of course, changes as well. So the Neanderthals are evolving through time in parallel with our own lineage, of course, because there was this split, in my view, around 400,000 years ago. So Homo habergensis goes in two different directions. Um, north of the Mediterranean, it becomes Neanderthals. South of the Mediterranean, Africa, it becomes us. So I see these two species drifting apart more than some sudden schism. What happens is that the Middle East and the Sahara gradually become more powerful barriers to human movement. And so the four more wide-ranging species, Hardebergensis, gradually gets divided. So in between them in the Middle East, uh, with increasing severe cold, those populations get separated increasingly and then go their own way. I always think of Neanderthal as uh, the view back, the reflection in, in sort of a funhouse mirror. It's It's almost us but it's very different from us at the same time. And as a person who researches Neanderthals, what is your kind of instinctive reaction when you study these people? These are these are human beings. Well, yes, I mean, they've obviously gone through themselves a lot of image transformations. So in the eight, late 1800s and early 1900s, there were no really primitive human-like fossils. That We had nothing from Africa of the very earliest stages of human evolution. So Neanderthals were pushed into that position. So around 1900, they're being reconstructed as ape men, stooping, hairy, grasping big toes, um, and... You know, we know that. They're, they're not like that. They're very evolved humans. Their brains were as big as ours, in some cases even bigger than the modern average. So they're actually highly evolved humans. But equally, they're not the same as us. And so Carlton Coon's classic thing was if you took a, a, a Neanderthal and washed and dressed him, modern clothes, put him on the New York subway, and no one would bat an eyelid. And as I said yesterday, that probably says more about the New York subway maybe than it says about Neanderthals. Nice. Yeah. Because I think they would have been different. I mean, Steve Jones has made the point that, you know, again with the, with the subway analogy, that, that if, if a Neanderthal came and, if a Cro-Magnon came and got on and sat next to you on the, uh, the, the, the London Underground, you might move seats because he'd look a bit odd. But if a Neanderthal came and got on, you might, you might change carriages. That, that was so... I think they would have looked quite different because in terms of time alone, of separation, if you think of, think of the people that met each other in the colonization events of two or three hundred years ago, so Europeans got to Australia and met the Aborigines, they got to the Americas and met the Native Americans. Those populations had maybe an effective separation time of, let's say, 40 or 50,000 years with the spread of modern humans out of Africa. When Cro-Magnons met Neanderthals, they were meeting groups that they'd been effectively separated from maybe for 300,000 years. So you can multiply whatever, however different we look to each other today and, and behave differently and, and cultural behavior and everything. You can multiply that two or three times probably to project how different the Neanderthals would have been. And okay, we can't imagine exactly, but I think they would have, we'd have thought they're very, they're very, I think they, we, would we have seen them as human? Yes. I mean, they walked upright. They obviously had technology and things like that, but I think they would have been more different than anything we can imagine today looking at the variation in modern people. Now, you mentioned culture. Now, culture does not fossilize. Behaviors do not fossilize. We might have some archaeological record, but it, it seems like the behavior uh, armamentarium of the Neanderthal was very different. The cultural aspects of Neanderthal life were very different from Homo sapien. And so 
how much of that do you think played a part in the fact that they're not here anymore versus just their physiology? Yeah, I, I think obviously behavioral differences were also a big part of this story. And, and of course, we came out of the same sort of cultural background as the Neanderthals. So our ancestors obviously shared large bodies of behavior and technology. And then even a 100,000 years ago, if you could look just at the stone tools that modern humans were making in Africa and Israel, they're really hardly any different from what the Neanderthals were doing. But then things obviously increasingly changed. And so by the time we get to 40,000 years ago, in my view, there is really quite a big gap that's, that's developed between the modern humans and the Neanderthals in terms of technology. So when moderns come into Europe, there is a much bigger gap there than there was 100,000 years ago between the two groups. And I think that the reason why the Neanderthals went extinct is it's certainly not the simple thing that we thought even 10 years ago. You know, I, I think I, I would have said, well, yeah, moderns came in and Neanderthals just very quickly just conceded they, they were inferior. Modern humans were superior technologically and the Neanderthals just went under very quickly. And we now know it's a more complicated story uh, and... So I think that um, we, we focus, because the best evidence is in Europe, say 35,000 years ago, that's obviously where everyone focuses their attention, uh, and it, it possibly was the very end of the Neanderthal story. I mean, maybe they survived in pockets somewhere else, but that's where we know they survived last. So everyone focuses in on that time. But of course, modern humans and Neanderthals range much more widely than that. So when modern humans came out of Africa, maybe 50,000 years ago, 55, 60,000 years ago, they would actually have probably encountered Neanderthals in Western Asia. And as they moved eastwards along Southern Asia, they may have encountered Neanderthals in Uzbekistan and, and Siberia. So actually, it probably was quite a wide-ranging process. So as, I, as I've said before, um, the reason why Neanderthals went extinct probably wasn't down to one single cause. There would have been different causes at work and combinations of causes in different places. But in Western Europe... I think it was a combination of the arrival of people with superior technology uh, and climate change. So the Antors were, were doubly unlucky because at the time modern humans came into Europe, the climate of Europe was extremely unstable. It was fluctuating very rapidly. Every few thousand years, it would switch very quickly from relative warmth to, to deep cold. Now, they had coped with that before by just retreating back into refugia. So they would just die out in wide areas, including Britain and northern Europe, and they'd retreat to the Dordogne or the Mediterranean. And then when things improved, they'd bounce back. But 45,000 years ago, there was another population arrived, and then they had to cope not only with these fluctuations, but a competing population. So at a time when the carrying capacity of the environment was crashing and it could support less people, less hunter-gatherers, suddenly there was another lot of people there. So I think it, it exacerbated the problems. And by 30,000 years ago, I mean, modern humans would have been impacted by these severe changes too, and they would have, their populations crashed as well. But somehow we got through it, and the Neanderthals didn't. So I think it was that combination in Western Europe that did for them. Uh, and if they'd have had a stable climate situation, maybe they'd have partitioned the environment, the two species, and somehow both could have survived, even until today. But that combination did, did for the Neanderthals. And I think we, even a, even a small percent of superiority in your ability to deal with cold, so we know modern humans had needles. They probably had sewn clothing, whereas Neanderthals probably fastened their clothing together. If you can sew your clothing, you can make much better insulating clothing, much better tent structures to shelter. Uh, modern humans have much more complex technology. I mean, you can compare Neanderthal technology. It was very good at what it did. Imagine a knife and fork. They're really good at their jobs. 
but with modern humans, you've got like the equivalent of a whole toolbox with spanners and pulleys and weaving and, and high temperature firing for even making clay statuettes. All of that technology, I think, just takes moderns that bit further than Neanderthals. All the geneticists I know of who study this uh, think that there's no genetic evidence for interbreeding between Neanderthals and modern Homo sapiens. And uh, from from your point of view, is is that uh, that sound like a reasonable stance? Well, it's certainly it's a stance that that I've argued for a long time. But on the other hand, to be fair to the geneticists, there are some who, I mean, Henry Harpenden has just published a book called, I don't know, the, the last 10,000 years of human evolution or something, where he argues that, in fact, Neanderthals did contribute. And he's a, you know, he's a distinguished geneticist. So there are still some geneticists who argue somewhere there will be some surviving Neanderthal genes. But, yes, I'm, I'm with Sranti Palbo, if you like, on the conclusion that at the moment the evidence for interbreeding is, is very thin. It's minimal. But that's not to say it didn't happen. So if we look at us and Neanderthals... Um, as we've said, I think they would have seemed quite different to modern humans in, in many ways. But on the other hand, human behaviour, let's say the vagaries of human behaviour, ima- you know, imagine that these things could happen sometimes. And genetically, these populations are very close. I mean, even a separation time of four or 500,000 years. Neanderthals were closer to us than even some groups of chimpanzees are genetically. Um, you know, chimpanzee species have been diverging for more than a million years. So, and... Zebras and horses, for example, have been separate for more than a million years, yet they can still hybridise. So for Neanderthals and modern humans, it was probably possible, but I think that for the populations, it probably was not something that was common, both for physical differences and social reasons. So you've got to think that, you know, you could have perhaps hybrids being created, but if those hybrids don't breed back into the parent populations because they look a bit different to normal, their combination of features, those genes will never penetrate the parent populations. And, even right. and that's and there are two different issues. Whether or not there was intermixing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- that could have happened without a genetic legacy mm-hmm. being passed on. What we're really t- yeah, there could be contact. Right. What we're talking about is are are there individuals alive today who carry Neanderthal genes? Did did that lineage survive? Whether or not you know some Neanderthal guy and some Homo sapien woman got together without leaving progeny, we can never know. Yeah. Well, yes, I mean, that's it. You're right to separate those issues. And there are some people who, my, my good friend Eric Trinkhouse, for example, thinks he can see in the early modern record evidence of some Neanderthal features showing up in, in, in odd places in the fossil record of the Cro-Magnons. And he says that's evidence of a phase of interbreeding. And then I would say, well, okay, those may be rare events. Okay, they can't be too rare if they're showing up fossils. So I, I don't agree with the interpretation. I have to say with, with Eric, I mean, I don't think necessarily these features are coming from Neanderthals. They're part of the variation of modern humans and some of them are archaic features that could be retained from ancestors in Africa. They don't have to come from Neanderthals. So that's one issue. But even allowing that there could be such hybrids and that there was a low level of contact, as I've mentioned, there was, there were huge population crashes in Europe around the peak of the last ice age. Some people estimate maybe 75 or 90 percent of Europeans died out at the peak of the last ice age as we retreated to refugia. So imagine a small bit of Neanderthal DNA in those populations before the maximum and then you lose most of those people 
you you could easily lose a small neanderthal contribution in such a population crash so even if it a little bit was there before um then then it, it doesn't get through and the genome work so far suggests that even that little bit isn't there at least in these neanderthals as far as we can tell from parbo's announcement so far he doesn't see evidence in this would, is a female neanderthal from india that gives most of the genome data that's in a sense you'd expect the female neanderthals to be showing signs of interbreeding more probably than the males do this you know if, if it's a, an asymmetric pattern if we make a it's dangerous to have modern metaphors but if you look at colonial metaphors of when european travelers went to the americas and and to australia the gene flow tended to be more into the, the native groups uh, than the other way around so by analogy with that we'd expect a female neanderthal to be the most likely place to be looking for signs of gene flow and it doesn't seem to be there so far but you never know, and I think we all agree that you need more samples. You can't base this on just a small sample. We need more Neanderthals, and obviously Svante is working on enlarging the sample. What's incredible is that even in the Neanderthal sample we've got, for some reason these Vindia remains, some of them, have many times better preservation of DNA than, than other specimens. And no one can say why that is. It's just chance events, even on the same bone. If you drill in different places, you will find huge differences in the amount of DNA. So there are, so basically, he's got to just do the, spread his net as widely as possible and then try and pick up these chance, remarkable preservations. And, of course, we really need to have DNA from Neanderthals over in Siberia. More of that. We know they seem to get that far. So what were they like compared with the ones in Western Europe? Hopefully, eventually, there will be whole genome data from those. And although, unfortunately, because of preservation conditions, we're unlikely to get good DNA from tropical, subtropical Africa where our species originated, nevertheless, possibly in high-altitude caves in North Africa and South Africa, there might be better DNA survival. And certainly places like China and Siberia, Mongolia, there are human fossils there. There are late archaic people in China, comparable to the Neanderthals. Those would be good candidates to look for ancient DNA as well, and that would be very exciting because then we've got a whole different bit possibly of the of the of the human lineage with DNA. And then there's the Hobbit, of course, in Flores, whatever that is. If it's, conditions there are poor for DNA preservation, but it would be absolutely remarkable if DNA could be recovered from Homo floresiensis because that could be an even older branch of the human tree. These are really remarkable times to be a Neanderthal researcher. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, well, I'd, I'd say the whole last 30 years have been remarkable times because so many new techniques have come online, dating, CT studies, s the synchrotron, allowing us to look at individual growth lines in Neanderthal teeth non-destructively, the ability to date things with much greater precision, um, and then DNA. And, he, you know, I was at Svante Parbo's press conference in London in 97 when he announced the first mitochondrial DNA, and I, I, I went on record as saying it, it was the equivalent in paleontology of landing something, landing land or mars and now who could have imagined 10 years later we're talking about the whole genome it's just incredible kate wong is scientific american's go-to person on human evolution she's also the co-author of the new book lucy's legacy the quest for human origins with the discoverer of the world famous australopithecus skeleton known as lucy donald johansson the title is Lucy's Legacy. What is Lucy's Legacy? It means a number of things. First of all, when Johansson and Tom Gray discovered Lucy in 1974, it prompted 
a decades-long search for more information about her species, Australopithecus afarensis, um, that continues to this day. And since then, uh, researchers have unearthed an enormous amount of information about who Lucy was, who her species was, where it lived, how it behaved. And so that's one aspect of Lucy's legacy. Because we now have something like 360 specimens of afarensis. Yeah, at last count, there are 365 individuals represented by the fossils that have been collected of this species. Many of them are very fragmentary, um, but others are more complete, um, such as Lucy. And then there, of course, there are other individuals that are represented by uh, largely complete skulls and other material as well. You know, we should probably back up because we both live in a world where there wasn't Lucy, and then there was Lucy. You were a little kid, but... I was just born. <laughs> All right, so let, let me take it back. <laughs> I live in a world where there wasn't Lucy, and then there was Lucy. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people listening have grown up where there was always the Lucy fossil. It was It's the most famous human ancestor fossil in the world. It is, and that's part, partially because she's so complete. Um, and she also, when she was discovered, answered a long-standing question about human evolution, which was, which of the two of our most salient features, upright walking or large brains, came first? And Lucy showed, without a doubt, that upright walking preceded the evolution of large brain size. So before Lucy... It just wasn't clear which came first, the upright walking or the or the big brain. And Lucy decided it definitively. That's right. She decided it definitively because it's absolutely clear from her pelvis and other features that she walked upright on two legs just like we do. And yet her brain is no larger than a chimpanzee's brain. 3.2 million years ago. Yes. Lucy is 3.2 million years old, although her species has been found spanning a period of about 500,000 years. The subtitle of the book, Lucy's Legacy, is The Quest for Human Origins. And it's uh, the book is as much a, uh, a scientific uh, explication as it is sort of an adventure story. Yeah, what we did in the in the book is to both recount what Johansson and his colleagues have been doing at Hadar and the work still continues there um, since 1990, um, you know, unearthing clues about Lucy's species. But then, of course, when Lucy was found and analyzed, she instantly begged the question of, well, what came before her? And um, although she was among the oldest hominids known when she was discovered, there are now putative human ancestors dating back as far as 7 million years ago. Do chimps and humans have those as a common ancestor then? No, those are not the remains, so far as we know, of the last common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans, but they get back pretty close to where we think that last common ancestor was. You know, the, there's the traveling exhibit where the actual fossil remains of Lucy are going around the country and it's in New York 
for the next couple of weeks. And I actually went to see it Friday night. And, um, it's, it's an amazing thing to see because those are really her bones, you know? And she's small. People might not realize how little, uh, Australopithecus afarensis is. She was what, about three feet tall? Yeah, probably about a meter tall. Um, but, but also probably fairly, um, muscular. But she's also, I, I, it kind of filled me with pity actually. The, the, just to think about her actual life and how difficult it must have been. Here's this little sort of human just with nothing that we take for granted every day. No clothing, no fire, no, no walk to the supermarket to get any food. I mean, every minute must have just been a, a hardship to, to live through. And that's where we all come from. We come from the survivors of all those hardships. So Lucy's legacy, I mean, we're Lucy's legacy. We are Lucy's legacy. Um, you know, Lucy is believed to be, um, ancestral to all of the later Australopithecine species and also our own genus Homo, which includes everything from us to Neanderthals to the little hobbits of Flores. Um, and you know, we cover all of this in the book and it's, it's in- just incredible to see how much new information about all of Lucy's descendants has been uncovered in the past couple of decades. Truly an astonishing period for paleoanthropology. So how did you actually come to be Johansson's co-author on the book? Well, he and his agent were familiar with my work at Scientific American, um, where I've contributed a number of articles on human evolution, and they approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in collaborating on the project. There's a story in the book about him going back to Ethiopia after many years. The political climate there made it impossible for Johansson to do any field work in Ethiopia for a while. And when he got back and announced to the customs official that he was the discoverer of Lucy, that was like a really big deal. So Lucy is a huge deal in Ethiopia where she was discovered. Absolutely. Um, Ethiopians really have um, a huge appreciation of this incredible fossil that comes from their country. And it's not just Lucy, of course. There have been a number of really important discoveries of human fossils in Ethiopia, the most recent of which, or the most recently described of which, is, of course, the Ardipithecus fossil that was um, unveiled last week. And what's the big deal about that fossil? Well, Ardipithecus comes from a slice of time in human evolution that was very, very poorly understood. I alluded earlier to some putative hominin remains dating back as far as 7 million years, but those are only known from um, a skull in one case um, and some teeth and limb bones in another case. Um, and Ardipithecus is a partial skeleton with many, many, many bones preserved. Actually, there are pro- approximately 36 individuals represented by all of the Ardipithecus finds, but the main find is, is a, is a largely complete skeleton. 
What's really interesting about Artipithecus is just how much more primitive it is than Lucy and other Australopithecine fossils. Um, it's clear from the pelvis that Artipithecus was capable of walking around upright, but it also has a number of primitive features uh, that indicate that it climbed in the trees as well. So there's Artipithecus's, the way it moved is is really interesting. And there's some other aspects that we know about its behavior based on its physio well, not physiology, but anatomy. Yes, apparently Artipithecus had um, small canine teeth. It's interesting because it gives us a potential insight into the behavior of this species. And that's because in chimps and gorillas, for example, um, the males have these large slashing dagger-like canines, and they use them in uh, both for fighting and, and in aggression displays when they're competing for females. Artipithecus, however, the males and the females have pretty similar canines, and they're small. There wasn't as much sexual dimorphism in Artipithecus, which is to say there were fewer differences between males and females. This is reflected not only in the teeth, but also in the body size. Males and females of Artipithecus seem to have uh, overlapped a lot in body size. And um, what this suggests is that females were not selecting the biggest, most aggressive males to mate with. One of the points that is underscored by the Artipithecus discovery is that the last common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees did not look particularly like a chimpanzee, which is what some paleoanthropologists had speculated. The The researchers uh, who described Artipithecus argue that their discovery uh, strongly implies that humans never went through a knuckle-walking phase um, over the course of evolution, which is, which is something that paleoanthropologists have been debating for quite some time. So in your lifetime... There's Lucy, there's Artipithecus, there's the Hobbit, uh, which we're calling, well, what's the official Latin name again for the Hobbit? Homo floresiensis. Because it's from the tiny island of Flores. So the, the world of uh, paleoanthropology, the search for human fossil remains, man, it's like hotter than ever right now. It's a really exciting time to be covering this field, um, especially with the um, discovery of the so-called hobbits from Flores, the, the island of Flores in Indonesia. Um, th- this is a find that really, really changes a lot of what paleoanthropologists thought they knew about human evolution. And it's shakeups like these that are the really thrilling things to cover as a journalist. And in fact, uh, in the November issue, I have an article that, that talks about some of the most recent discoveries that have been made about the Hobbit since they were first announced in 2004. To hear an interview with Donald Johansson, check out the Science Talk podcast episode of September 20th, 2006, available in our archives at www.siam.com slash podcast or directly at snipurl.com slash lucyfinder. Now it's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. 
See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, catnip chemicals discourage flies that annoy cows. Story two, a home run by Yankee first baseman Mark Teixeira in the first round of the playoffs against the Twins left the ballpark in just 2.88 seconds, making it the fastest homer of the year. Story three, our biggest defense against fungal infections appears to be our ability to move, which limits spores' ability to gain a foothold or whatever kind of hold a footless spore gets. And story four, election outcomes affect men's testosterone levels. We'll be back with the answer, but first I want to thank all the listeners who wrote in about last week's episode. We had mentioned a century-old Scientific American item suggesting that images be put on the walls of subway lines so that the effect for the rider would be movies to watch. Numerous people wrote in to point out that such images actually do exist today in subway lines around the world. They're mostly ads, but they're fun. Check out the comments on the October 14th podcast. You'll find links to see the videos. You can find the October 14th Science Talk page at www.siam.com slash podcast. Story one is true. USDA scientists have identified two chemical compounds found in catnip that stable flies really hate. The compound stops most flies from biting cattle and also keeps most females from laying eggs. It's estimated that stable flies cost the U.S. cattle industry $2 billion annually in reduced milk yield and other production losses. The research will appear in an upcoming issue of the Journal of Medical and Veterinary Entomology. Story two is true. Tashira's 2.88-second homer went out faster than any other of the over 5,000 major league home runs of 2009. That's according to the website www.hittrackeronline.com. If you're a baseball fan, do not go to that website because you'll be there the rest of the day. And story four is true. Election outcomes did affect men's testosterone levels, according to research done last fall. A study of 163 college-aged men found that Obama voters maintained stable testosterone levels, while McCain voters saw their levels drop after the results were announced. For more info, check out the October 23rd article on our website called Jock the Vote, Election Outcomes Affect Testosterone Levels in Men. All of which means that story three about locomotion being the biggest reason we avoid most fungal infections is totally bogus. Because a new study finds that it's our body temperature that keeps us from being widely colonized by fungi. Most fungi do quite well up to about 86 degrees, but survivors drop 6% for every additional degree. So just being at 98.6 degrees renders most fungal species, well, dead. The study appears in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. For more, check out the October 23rd episode of the Daily Scientific American Podcast, 60 Second Science. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news and our in-depth report on Galileo and the International Year of Astronomy. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky, as is my Twitter handle. Thanks for clicking on us.